This was how she announced her decision today. We make decisions about what's best for ourselves, our family, and our community. And so we don't spend a lot of time thinking about, is this a Republican idea or is this a Democratic idea? Is this liberal or is this conservative? That's not how Arizonans think. Registering as an independent and showing up to work with the title of independent is a reflection of who I've always been. And it's a reflection of who Arizona is. Senator Kristen Sinema announced today that she would leave the Democratic Party to become an independent and said that she's doing so because that's what Arizona voters want. The senator elaborated on her decision in an op-ed for azcentral.com, quote, Pressures in both parties pull leaders to the edges, allowing the loudest, most extreme voices to determine their respective parties' priorities. In catering to the fringes, neither party has demonstrated much tolerance for diversity of thought. Americans are told we only have two choices, Democrat or Republican, and that we must subscribe wholesale to policy views the parties hold, views that have been pulled farther and farther toward the extremes. Most Arizonans believe this is a false choice. Anyone who is not just waking up from a 12-year coma knows that what the senator is engaging in here is false equivalency. A study this year by the Pew Research Center found that since 1972, the Republican Party has become more than four times more polarized than the Democratic Party in the Senate and more than three times more polarized in the House. We are way past the point where any reasonable person can look at a GOP that is given in to anti-democratic right-wing demagoguery and a Democratic Party where some people want everyone to have free health care and declare that extremism has captured both sides. But set that aside for a second, because Senator Sinema isn't just wrong about America. She is wrong about Arizona. The biggest political earthquake of the last three elections has been the shift we've watched in Georgia and Arizona. Both states have gone from Republican strongholds to states where Democrats can win statewide. And that shift wasn't driven by a radical rise in moderate swing voters. Both Georgia and Arizona have seen rapid growth in their urban populations alongside a steady decline in the rural population. The Atlanta area is now one of the fastest growing metro major areas in the major metro areas in the U.S., driven in part by a diverse influx of residents who recently helped turn Atlanta into a majority non-white city. At the same time, rural parts of Georgia, like Dooley County, have lost as much as a quarter of their population. Phoenix, Arizona, recently surpassed Philadelphia to become the nation's fifth largest city, while Cochise County, home of some of the state's most ardent election deniers, was one of the few places in Arizona that lost residents over the past decade. Those shifts have moved the political center of gravity away from largely white rural conservative areas toward multi-ethnic, democratic-leaning cities and suburbs. Organizers in those places spent years building power to mobilize those democratic-leaning urban constituencies to vote in big enough numbers that they can overcome rural conservative majorities. In other words, the trend in those states, including Arizona, isn't moving away from both parties. It's moving toward Democrats. And the evidence is right there in the last election. Just this week, Senator Raphael Warnock won his second Senate election in two years, running as a party-line Democrat in Georgia. Senator Mark Kelly also won his second second Senate election in two years, also running on his record as a rank-and-file Democrat in the Senate. Democrats in Arizona won statewide races for Senate, 
for governor, for secretary of state, all in a year that should have favored Republicans in a very recently red state. But Senator Sinema has somehow decided that the lesson of all that, the lesson of that election, is that Arizona voters don't want to vote for someone associated with the Democratic Party. Now, it's worth pointing out that what Senator Sinema is doing here will not fundamentally change the balance of power in Washington. She says she won't caucus with Republicans, which means Democrats will retain their outright majority, keeping their power over Senate committees and the Senate floor. But what Senator Sinema is doing here will change the balance of power in Arizona's next Senate election. And that is really what's important here. That is what this is all about. For context, it's worth understanding just how unpopular Kristen Sinema is with Democratic voters in her state. A poll taken this past January, just as Senators Sinema and Manchin were throwing a wrench in President Biden's agenda, found that only 19 percent of Democratic primary voters in Arizona approved of the job Senator Sinema was doing. By contrast, Senator Mark Kelly had an 83 percent approval rating among those same Arizona Democrats. President Biden was at 80 percent. That same poll found Senator Sinema would lose a hypothetical primary race to Arizona Democratic Congressman Ruben Gallego by a whopping, staggering 58 points. 58! Senator Sinema is likely more unpopular with voters in her own party than any Democratic senator has been in decades. And that is the real reason Senator Sinema left the Democratic Party today. By changing her affiliation to independent, Sinema is ensuring that she won't have to face a primary challenger and that any Arizona Democrat who wants to challenge her will have to do so in a three-way race that could risk splitting the Democratic vote and handing that race to a Republican. For the past two years, Democrats and the Biden administration have watched their agenda be stymied by moderates like Senators Sinema and Manchin. Now one of those senators is maneuvering to ensure that one of the seats key to any Democratic majority in the Senate will remain in the hands of a moderate obstructionist, someone who will oppose any of the changes necessary to ensure things like voting rights and abortion access. So what do progressives and Arizona Democrats, what do they do now? Joining us now is Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, Democrat from the state of Washington, recently re-elected chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus and newly appointed member of the Democratic Steering and Policy Committee. Congresswoman Jayapal, thank you for being here tonight. Congratulations on the uh, re-election to those important committees and, and that caucus. Can I just get your first reaction? What, what was your morning like when you woke up to the headlines about Senator Sinema? Well, Alex, let me just say that... Um, I am going to trust what she says, what everyone says, that this is not going to fundamentally shift the balance of power in the Senate that we all have worked so worked so hard to deliver so that we can deliver real results to working people. And I'm really glad that you focused on the shift in Arizona because in 2010, Alex, I was sleeping on a church basement protesting Arizona's SB 1070 horrific anti-immigrant law. And at the time, even people in the Democratic Party, I was I was an activist at the time, and even people in the Democratic Party were saying, you know, immigrants are never going to turn out and vote for us. And so that's opposing this in the way that you might want us to these things. And it was grassroots including some of us from outside of the state that really helped to build over a decade um, a different kind of electoral 
uh, majority. And that's what you see, you know, Stacey Abrams' work, Black Voters Matter, so many others in Georgia did, did the same thing over the course of a decade to say that the real possibility here is expanding the electorate, getting young people excited. And so, um, you know, I think that in Arizona, this is going to be a difficult election if it's a three-way race. Um, but I really think that I have a lot of faith in the voters of Arizona to understand who is going to vote, who is going to work for them. And let's see what the next two years bring. It feels like it's a dare almost from cinema, right? I know that you may not like me. I may not be a Democrat. I'm an independent, but I'm someone who could win for you in theory, I guess for you is that that's, uh, you can sort of parse that. What does it mean for Kristen Sinema to be for a party or not? Do you think that Ruben Gallego should run? He is the person that could vanquish her in a primary, but it's unclear what happens. Well, I'm just focused on how do we get the most work done over the next two years? Because we need that going into 2024 to get um, voting rights done, to get abortion rights codified, to get universal child care passed, the rest of our Build Back Better agenda, Alex, we need to have 52 votes in the Senate, ideally more. And we have a shot at doing that. And so that's what I think we have to focus on. I don't know who's going to run. I don't know if Ruben's going to run or somebody else is going to run. I really don't. But what I do know is that our work now as progressives is to continue to show that progressive policies across the country are winning. They have actually become kind of establishment democratic policies for the most part in most places. Remember, Alex, 99% of the Democratic Party in Congress and, uh, you know, a hundred a lot of people across the country, maybe not 100%, were supporting all of the policies in Build Back Better that we didn't get done. That's what we need to focus on. And I've been talking to the White House about how we can be helpful to the White House in really moving bold progressive executive action. And of course, with our incredible almost 50 percent of the Democratic caucus progressive members that have come in. I guess what what do you make of when you talk about progressive values? Cinema announced her choice uh, to be an independent by asserting an equivalence between the, the radicalization of the Republican Party and the movement of the Democratic Party towards the left. What's your response to that? Well, I really disagree with that. And um, look, she's right that we don't have a multi-party system. That's true. I mean, we uh, we only have really, for all intents and purposes, two parties. We're not like Germany. We're not like other countries in Europe that have many vibrant parties. And I wish we did have a multi-party system, but we don't. This is the system we have. And given the system we have, we have to recognize that we need to take not only the independents, the moderates, the swing voters, fewer and fewer of them, by the way, Alex, but we also have to mobilize our base. And we have to make sure that we are being respectful to our base who doesn't want crazy things. You are absolutely right to point out the false equivalencies. This Republican Party wants to destroy our Constitution and lies about our, our elections and doesn't believe that President Biden is the legitimate president. The left progressives are pushing for universal health care, for universal child care, for investments in housing that make people's lives better. And as uh, somebody in Germany said to me when I was visiting there uh, a few months earlier, they said, you know, um, your left and Bernie Sanders would be considered moderate here in Europe because we have all those things. So let's just be clear about that. And I appreciate your pointing out the ridiculousness of false equivalencies. What about 
about the increasing urban and rural divide? I mean, the fact is that Democrats are able to win some of these races because they have such strong support in urban centers, which are increasingly growing. But when you become a party that is largely centered in urban parts of the country, it's a problem when every state, including ones in you know center of the country that are not large urban centers, have, you know, they send two senators to the upper chamber. Is that a problem for Democrats in the long term? Well, I do think we have to really have, and I've been talking about it this way, an every person matters, every place matters approach to things. Because I don't think that in rural areas, our ideas are unpopular. Um, I think that we have to fight a conservative right that is trying to make it seem like, um, you know, neoliberal economics works when it doesn't. I think that you go into most parts of the country and people want a $15 minimum wage. The people that are out of touch are the Republican senators who don't want to move that forward. And similarly, with universal health care, with so many of the things that we talk about, but we do have to go and listen and we do have to go and make sure that everybody understands we are open to everybody being everyone who wants to really move the country forward. We want to be the party. We are the party. Democrats are the party, Alex, of freedom, family and faith. We believe in freedom, in the right to vote, freedom to make decisions about our own bodies. We believe in keeping families together and supporting families. And we believe in faith in our Constitution and in our democracy. And so I think that's what we need to go out. We need to speak to everybody across the country about. Just a side note, one person who was also against a $15 minimum wage, Senator Kristen Sinema, famously giving it a thumbs down. Not saying, just saying. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal of the state of Washington, always great to see you. Thanks for your time this Friday evening. Thank you, Alex. Great to be with you. We have much more to come tonight. While Brittany Griner spends her first day back on U.S. soil, new reports of Russia's demands in order to send home another American prisoner. But first... A rare good day for Team Trump in a federal courtroom over the Mar-a-Lago case is actually a sign that the Justice Department is taking the gloves off. That's next. Hey, everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. It's Monday night. It's Monday, everyone. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. One hundred and eight days. That is how long former President Trump managed to delay the Justice Department from using the evidence they gathered during their search of Mar-a-Lago back in August. Not only did Trump manage to shift much of the focus away from his own actual alleged crimes and towards weedy legal minutiae, 
He managed to throw sand in the gears of the criminal investigation for three and a half months. But now, as of yesterday, a federal appeals court in Atlanta has officially brought an end to that whole thing. Put another way, for 108 days, the Department of Justice didn't know what evidence it would actually be able to use in a court because of the whole special master Michigas. Without knowing exactly what evidence was at its disposal, it was unlikely the DOJ would be able to put together a complete case, let alone indict. But now that is all over and done with, and the Justice Department can finally get down to business. And if what happened in court today is any indication, it looks like the DOJ is coming out swinging. Today, the Justice Department went to court to try and have the office of the former president held in contempt of court. Contempt for failing to obey a subpoena from May before the FBI searched Mar-a-Lago, one that ordered Trump's office to turn over all of the classified documents in its possession. Now, no media was allowed in court today. NBC was part of a press coalition that petitioned the judge for access to the hearing, but that was not granted. And NBC News reports that the judge today did not hold Trump's office in contempt. But the mere fact that the Justice Department tried something this aggressive in the first place is notable. That aggressive stance could be for any number of reasons. But one potential reason is the fact that the custody of the Mar-a-Lago case has been transferred to the newly appointed special counsel, Jack Smith. This is from The New York Times today. Some lawyers who have worked with Mr. Smith's team have said they were told that the Justice Department would no longer pull punches in seeking to enforce court orders or subpoenas. This is no longer the special master circus. The clowns may go home. The DOJ is no longer pulling punches. Joining us now is California Congressman Eric Swalwell, who sits on both the Judiciary and Intelligence Committees. Congressman, thanks for being here tonight. I wonder if you read the analysis of what happened today in court the same way, that the mere fact that the DOJ was trying to get this contempt of court conviction ruling uh, is evidence of a newly emboldened Justice Department. Do you see it that way? I do, Alex. And it's nice to finally see a party in court with Donald Trump playing on Donald Trump's side of the field, because so often, you know, this legal terrorist uh, has other parties on their heels and he'll just grind you down with frivolous motion after frivolous motion and delay, delay, delay. Uh, That's what he does. And, And it's clear that this team is not doing that. As a former prosecutor, I also see this effort to hold him in contempt as a win-win, right? Uh, You can have the court hold him in contempt and then finally maybe get the documents back. Or the fact that he will not turn over the documents and won't even do it with a threat of a contempt order just goes to his uh, intent and and the fact that this was not a mistake that these documents landed, you know, at Mar-a-Lago. This is what he intended. Uh, And it also, by the way, shows uh, that they really want to get these documents back. And every second that they're at this beach house uh, in the possession of Donald Trump uh, is a risk to our national security. Yeah. So, well, actually, that gets to my next question was, which is, is this the DOJ's play to actually get the documents back? Or do you think this could be a perjury trap? Well, again, they put him in a position where he either has to assert that the documents aren't there. And if they are, then he's in a whole other you know, world of trouble. Uh, but if he's not willing to assert anything at all, well, that's because, you know, the documents are there and, and they are circling the target. And they, I think, know they have the goods on this guy. Uh, But I also would like to point out, uh, Alex, that these are sensitive documents that likely include 
what is called, you know, human source information, uh, where people have risked their lives and livelihood to help the U.S. government uh, to protect ourselves from a terrorist attack, to protect us from another country's, you know, military or nuclear weapon capabilities. And they're in the hands of someone who's already proven himself willing to leverage military aid to get the Ukrainians to put dirt on Joe Biden. So who knows what Donald Trump would do with these documents uh, to save his own skin? Do you think that there was any utility in terms of Trump's legal uh, defense team in terms of the special master process? Did, did, did they get anything out of that beyond the delay? And, and was that in and of itself enough? Well, uh, Alex, they destroyed the credibility and career of one of his own appointees and Judge Cannon. Uh, you know, she uh, certainly would have a hard time advancing uh, on the bench now, having been repudiated by multiple uh, justices. And uh, yeah, sure, it, it did delay uh, this process. Uh, but, you know, this there's an inevitability here uh, that I sense in this justice team, uh, which is that this was not a mistake that he possesses these documents. He clearly, uh, you know, intended to con- to take them, conceal them, and even under legal threat, won't turn them over. And I, I think the judge today, by not giving the contempt order, may actually be signaling to the Justice Department, you actually have a remedy. You can go ahead and indict him or you can seek another search warrant at other properties to get these documents. So they're not helpless at all. Yeah, it w- remains to be seen whether this was an overture to another search warrant. I, that this, this special counsel who is leading uh, the Justice Department on Mar-a-Lago is also leading the investigation into January 6th. And there has been some movement on that front. We know that there is a special committee meeting this weekend to decide on criminal referrals from the committee to the DOJ. Um, some of the names that have been floated for criminal referrals include the former president, Mark Meadows, John Eastman, Jeff Clark, the former Justice Department official, and Rudy Giuliani. When you think about this strange cast of characters who tried to usurp usurp American democracy, are those the primary aggressors? Uh, Is that the full list to your mind? Are we missing anybody? (laughs) Well, certainly, you know, the, the latter three that you named would likely be referred for obstruction of Congress or or not, you know, cooperating with lawful subpoenas, people who have information that could help their country and chose not to. Donald Trump, I think, is on the hook for impeding an official act. That's a a different type of obstruction of Congress when he aimed that mob at the Capitol. Again, that's, you know, up to the committee and ultimately up to the Department of Justice. Uh, But it is reassuring to finally see this legal crescendo uh, taking shape against somebody who for so long has really avoided accountability. It really does. That's just the right word for it. Legal crescendo, because it does feel like the strings are swelling, if you will. California Congressman Eric Swalwell. Thanks, as always, for your time and wisdom tonight, Congressman. My pleasure. Still ahead tonight, they call him the bicycle assassin. And he is reportedly very important to Russian President Vladimir Putin. We will explain who he is, what he did, and what may happen to him next. Plus, when Democrats needed a boost in the midterms, they called in the closer, former Commander-in-Chief Barack Obama. We'll get up close and personal with someone who spent years by the former president's side. That is just ahead. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win.
Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. You are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet. Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film The Aviators. Now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. It was the summer of 2019, and Berlin's most popular inner city park was packed. A man on a bicycle showed up, and soon, witnesses saw how that man approached another man from behind and shot him twice, using a handgun prepped with a silencer. He then fired a final shot in the back of the victim's head, threw the bicycle, a gun, and a wig into a nearby river, changed clothes, and fled the scene. People in the park followed him at a distance and called the police. He was soon arrested, all in broad daylight. The suspect had a fake passport with a fake name, but German authorities were quickly able to confirm his real identity. The assassin was Vadim Krasikov, a former Russian spy. During the trial, evidence emerged that Krasikov was still on Russia's payroll and was likely hired to kill Zelimkan Kangoshvili in Germany, a man who was an old enemy of Moscow's and had fought against the Russians in the Chechen War. Russia was clearly sending a message. Germany called it state tourism. Terrorism. But even before this shocking murder in broad daylight, Krasikov was notorious. That is because six years earlier, in 2013, he killed a businessman in Moscow using the exact same method, on a bicycle, shooting his victim in the back and in the head. Krasikov was labeled the bicycle assassin. After that murder, Krasikov was placed on a wanted list in Russia, but that did not last long. The investigation that had revealed his name was ended. His name was deleted from most Russian databases. He basically disappeared. Poof. Today, the bicycle assassin is in the news again. CNN reported today that Vadim Krasikov is the man Russia wanted to trade with the U.S. in exchange for releasing jailed American Paul Whelan. Quote, Russia refused to release Paul Whelan alongside Brittany Griner unless a former colonel from Russia's domestic spy organization was also released as part of any prisoner swap. The U.S. was unable to deliver on the request because he is serving out a life sentence for murder in Germany. The U.S. apparently offered other Russian prisoners, men and women, men, who knows, detained on U.S. soil, as a potential trade for Paul Whelan, but Russia was not interested. They wanted Krasikov, and while it is unclear exactly what Putin's plans are now, it is worth mentioning that all of this is happening against the backdrop of war in Ukraine. And on that front, we have additional alarming news. Putin said today that Russia is considering adding a nuclear first strike strategy to its military doctrine, meaning Putin is suggesting he might use nuclear weapons as a disarming strategy if Russia were to be attacked. It is a concerning statement from a country that insists often that it is the victim of Western offensives. We'll talk about the bicycle assassin and Putin's nuclear option with former Obama Deputy National Security Advisor Ben Rhodes. That's coming up next. We are having problems getting former Obama Deputy National Security Advisor Ben Rhodes on the line, so we'll leave that one for a little bit later. In the meantime, we have something else for you. George W. Bush called it a thumping. Barack Obama called it a shellacking. You can call it whatever you want. 
But Democrats managed to avoid losing the dozens of House seats the president's party traditionally loses in its first midterm election. While the party lost control of the House, Democrats increased their majority in the Senate, and they made historic gains in several state races. Having a strong message focused on protecting democracy and a woman's bodily autonomy, that certainly played a big part in keeping the thumping to a minimum. But having a certain former president as the closer, as the closer, also did not hurt. A few weeks ago, 14 members of Adam Laxalt's family announced they were supporting Catherine Cortez Masto. 14. Think about that. Think about that. Now, now let, let, let me say this. You know, we, we all might have a crazy uncle, you know, that, that kind of goes off the rails. But if you've got a full Thanksgiving dinner table, <laughs> and they're all saying you don't belong in the U.S. Senate, when the people who know you best think your opponent would do a better job, that says something about you. John's opponent said the decision about whether to have an abortion should be made by, quote, women, doctors, and local political leaders. Really? I mean, what, what, are you going to petition the mayor? Are, are you calling the sheriff? City council member? School board? Who exactly should tell you when to start a family? You should make that decision. And if that's not worth 15 minutes of your time, the amount of time it takes to vote, I don't know what is. Former President Barack Obama hit the trail in the battleground states of Nevada, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Georgia in the final stretch of the midterm election. And at every stop, the former president drew a contrast between conspiracy theorists and Democrats, mobilizing voters with the energy and the humor we saw during his own candidacy and presidency. Joining us now is someone who has been there for all of President Barack Obama's pivotal moments, Pete Souza, the chief official White House photographer for President Barack Obama. He is the author of the new book, The West Wing and Beyond, What I Saw Inside the Presidency. Pete Souza, it's great to see you. Great to see you, Alex. Uh, so all the books that you have put out about the Obama presidency have been so riveting. The photographs are so beautiful. Um, this one is very much about the presidency around the president. But I want to start with the, the man himself, since you know him in a way that few others do, and you've seen him in these incredibly intimate private moments. He was always, you know, there was talk in Washington that he was a reluctant campaigner, that he didn't have a lot of appetite for politics. But man, when you see him out on the campaign trail, <laughs> it's like the most natural thing in the world. What, did, what do you know and what can you tell us about the way in which he approached campaigning and talking to crowds? I, you know, I don't know if he was reluctant or not, but he sure turned it on. I mean, I, ha I went to the event in Wisconsin and hadn't seen him for a while. And I, I sat backstage with him and talked to him for probably a half hour. And we were talking about family stuff. And he went out on stage and just like, boom. The magic. A the magic just, he just was turned it on. I mean... I was taken aback. <laughs> he went from basically to having a serious conversation with you yeah. to just lighting up the lighting room. Lighting it up. Um, you also, I mean, Vice President Biden and President Obama had a pretty specifically 
warm, collegial relationship. You have a few photos in the new book. There's one that really grabbed me. It's a the president. That's it. Uh, president Biden holding President Obama's hand during a prayer. What what can you tell me about the nature of that that relationship, that friendship? I, I think it was beyond a friendship. I think it was a brotherhood. It really was. Um, they and I think they especially bonded during the tragic year of Bo Biden's um, cancer diagnosis with yeah. his brain tumor. And and Vice President Biden confided in, in President Obama, I think, a lot of things that he didn't tell anybody else. And I think that brotherhood really uh, just came to fruition during that period of time. It's so unique to characterize it as a brotherhood, because I think a lot of people initially saw it as a paternal relationship, since Biden's considerably older than Obama. He'd been in politics a lot longer. In part, the reason that Obama chose Biden was because he was a newer, he was a newcomer, effectively, to the American political stage. And Biden was a seasoned, um, a veteran, if you will. But it sounds like, especially in the later years, that turned, you know, or maybe it turned earlier than that. And there really was an equity in that relationship. And they had mutual need for one another. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think that Joe came from such a different background than Barack Obama did. You know, the Scranton point of view that was always evident in every discussion they had. Um, And I think that was one of the 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 main reasons why he counted on Joe Biden, especially in a lot of the early economic meetings. Yeah. And and what can you tell us about you know, eight years of Joe Biden in the in, in the White House. I mean, you were not the official photographer for the no. vice president, but he was around a lot. I mean, there were regular lunches. He was around a lot, and I got to know him really well. And I, and I have told people that he is as decent a man as you can find, and he is a, as empathetic and compassionate person as I know. He was very kind to my mother, for instance. Um, and, you know, and I'll never forget that. He's the kind of person that will sing someone happy birthday when he finds out it's he, their birthday, which happened actually this week to someone yeah, that I know. Yeah. No, Alex, two weeks before the election, right after my mom had died, Joe Biden called me. He's in the middle of this campaign wow. in 2020, and he took the time to call me and spent 10 minutes on the phone with me talking about my mom. Is it um, is it a strange thing to be the White House photographer? And, and you know, at once you're doing a job, but you've also forged, uh, you know, personal relationships with especially President Obama. Do you is it is it hard to separate that personal relationship with the job that you have to do, which is to relentlessly document these moments? I think it made it easier, actually. I think it made it easier because you are wanted to be there. You are wanted to be in the room where it happened. And and I, I think there's many pictures that I never would have made because of the access, if not for that relationship that I had with both President Obama and Vice President Biden. Do you did they remember you were in the room after a while or did they sort of forget about it? I think I became part of the presidency. I, don't, I wouldn't say that I was I mean, I wouldn't say I was like part of the woodwork, but I was like part of the, you know, the paintings on the wall almost. It's a beautiful. These photos are just beautiful chronicles of not, of course, just the principal players, but there's Reggie Love falling asleep on a couch. I mean, the infrastructure of the presidency and the people that make the presidency possible. It almost which, feels like a love letter to them, which is it, that's exactly what it is. And because it's a it's a big family that supports the president yeah. and not just the appointees, but the people that work there, 
no matter who the president is, the butlers, the chefs, um, you know yeah. what it's like there. It, um, it is, um, it is, I think everybody should get it to understand what happens in the White House in a way that most formal sort of presidential books don't often illustrate. And it's not exactly like the West Wing, the show. No, it's not. But it's, uh, it's quite different. It's quite different. Yeah. <laughs> Pete Souza, the official White House photographer for Barack Obama. Uh, a wonderful new book. Can we break the cover back up so that everybody can see it for their holiday purchasing? <laughs> it's great to see you. The West Wing and beyond. Thanks, Pete. Congrats on the new Thanks, book. Thanks, Alex. Okay. The technical gremlins have been fixed and Ben Rhodes is now ready to join us. So we'll talk with him about the bicycle assassin and Putin's nuclear option coming up next. He was named the bicycle assassin after he killed a businessman in Moscow in 2013. He did it again in Germany in 2019, same method, on a bicycle with shots to the back and to the head of both of his victims. His name is Vadim Krasikov, the man that Russia wanted to trade with the U.S. in exchange for releasing jailed American Paul Whelan. Why didn't it work? We will discuss with Ben Rhodes, former Deputy National Security Advisor for President Obama and co-host of the podcast, Pod Save the World. Ben, thanks for being here. It's good to see you. Um, can we just talk first about what a trilateral negotiation here? You've been part of high stakes negotiation. Vadim Krasikov is in jail in Germany serving a life sentence for murder. The Russians want him. He's not an American prisoner. The U.S. is tasked with somehow convincing Germany to get Krasikov out of jail. What is a trilateral negotiation like that? And what what can the U.S. offer Germany in a situation like that? I mean, it's incredibly complicated uh, when you're negotiating a prisoner exchange between two countries. It's difficult enough, Alex. Um, I think that the Russian motivations here um, are, are a bit suspect. I mean, first of all, they're kind of trying to put forward the notion that the U.S. can just tell Germany what to do, um, which is kind of them trying to create a fissure potentially between the U.S.-German relationship. They want the U.S. and Germany to be at odds with each other. So part of me thinks that this might have been an effort to drive a wedge between us by getting us to try to press Germ the Germans to do something. And then the other thing is that they uh, have categorized Paul Whelan as a intelligence asset, essentially. Um, and, and to them, that rises, raises the price uh, for any exchange involving him. Uh, and so perhaps they were just testing to see how far they could go and what they're trying to get, because I can't see any scenario in which the United States is pressing to release uh, uh, someone in a third country, an allied country who's been convicted of murder like this. Mm. As far as that, as far as the release of Whelan is concerned, do you think the door is closed at this point? I mean, there are other there are various legal representatives who say, no, no, no. But Whelan's family seems to think I think they, their quote is the situation makes hope a little bit more difficult. Do you think that there's the opportunity to negotiate further with Putin on this? I do. I don't think that the door is ever closed. And I think, frankly, like the Russians will do transactions. They're very transactional people. They got Victor Boot in exchange for Brittany Griner, they will want to get something in exchange for Paul Whelan. I do think the concerning thing in all the reports that I've read, Alex, uh, is that they are insisting that he kind of be treated in the espionage category. That's a different category. And both Paul Whelan and the United States have insisted that he was not uh, a spy for the United States. It, it just makes it a different kind of negotiation because the Russians may be seeking 
other intelligence assets of their own in exchange. They may want to make it into a spy swap. Um, and we don't want to acknowledge, it because we uh, insist it's not the case, that Paul Whelan was uh, involved in intelligence. So it's never, the door is never closed. The Russians will always do a transaction. I do think part of the sticking point is the way in which they're insisting that they categorize Paul Whelan. Well, yeah. And if they categorize Paul Whelan as an intelligence asset, they're going to demand a high priority intelligence asset in return. And the Biden White House is under some amount of scrutiny, if not outright criticism, for the asymmetry of the trade they just made. Victor Boot for Brittany Griner. Brittany Griner had literally nothing, uh, no reason to be in a Russian penal colony. Victor Boot very much had reason to be in prison in America, in jail in America. What... I mean, if you're in the Biden administration, how careful do you think they need to be in making sure that the next swap isn't as asymmetrical? I mean, can they do that? Can, do you think that there's appetite to even engage in this precisely because of the difficult decision they had to make on Griner? I think that they've probably been going through this already, Alex, for the last few months. And this is probably contributing somewhat to the Whelan family's disappointment, because I think that they've been testing in the negotiation that led to Brittany Griner's release, whether they could get Paul Whelan back uh, in exchange for something that was not uh, an exorbitantly damaging and dangerous uh, cost to them. Having been involved in some of these uh, decisions in the White House in the Obama years, you look at a range of factors. You look at what kind of justice is being denied? Victor Boot only served half his sentence. You look at what is the ongoing risk to U.S. national security by releasing this person? Uh, what message are you sending about the price that could be obtained by grabbing and detaining uh, wrongfully other Americans in other countries? There's a whole kind of matrix that you have to run through. And uh, clearly what the Russians were asking for, for Paul Whelan, including perhaps this bicycle assassin, went well beyond what they were comfortable with. And so now it's kind of back to square one. Can you make a different kind of offer to the Russians that might put uh, Paul Whelan coming home back in play? I think right now, the fact that we just have Brittany Griner returning home, which is wonderful news, obviously, in exchange for Victor Boot, that suggests that the Biden administration didn't like what the Russians were asking for in return for Paul Whelan. What do you make of the fact that Putin's threatening the nuclear option the, the day after this prisoner swap, the, the day after people are saying, oh, maybe this is a signal of warming relations or at least more open lines of communication between the U.S. and Russia? Is that basically saber rattling? I mean, how do you read that? I do think he's trying to indicate that this doesn't represent a thawing in relations. Uh, and frankly, the U.S. had to be careful there, too. It is the case in past negotiations. You know, I was involved in a negotiation to free Alan Gross, a detained American in Cuba. We coupled that negotiation with a much bigger negotiation to normalize relations between the U.S. and Cuba. Sometimes sensitive negotiations around prisoners can lead to discussions about bigger issues. And so I think the elephant in the room in this exchange is, could this lead to diplomacy between the U.S. and Russia on bigger issues? Ukraine is looking at that and saying, not without us in the, in the room. You can talk about uh, your detained citizens. You could talk about the global food crisis. You can talk about uh, potential you know, nuclear uh, hotlines with Russia. But don't talk about the resolution of the war in Ukraine without us. That's Ukraine's message. I think Putin's message today was just because we did this transaction with the Americans, don't think that that's me climbing down from the position I've taken vis-a-vis -vis the West and vis-a-vis -vis the war in Ukraine. So I think it's status quo ante uh, for the broader tensions, even if we were able to get this important piece of business done bringing Brittany Griner home. Former Deputy National Security Advisor for President Obama and co-host of Pod Save the World, Ben Rhodes. Always good to see you, my friend. That does it for us tonight. Rachel will be here on Monday. 